You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am delighted that we get to spend the next hour together taking a tour of the arts. Theatre, cabaret, cinema, art. It's all going on, whether we are there in person or watching from afar. And I am so appreciative of the afar option, as that will likely be my reality for a while yet, as I am far down the list of vaccine priorities, as I should be. I am counting the weeks until outdoor events are able to resume, but at this point in the winter, that still seems like a ways away. And so I am immensely thankful that all my arts pals are so committed to entertaining me at home for the foreseeable future. This week is another packed show and we'll be visiting with Ragtag Cinema's Barbie Banks to get her take on the Academy Awards and find out what's happening in our own theatre world. Then it's off to the Columbia Art League to chat with Kelsey Hammond about local artists' take on Dante's Divine Comedy, the theme for the gallery's current show. And finally today, we check in with Audra Sergal, Rashara Knight and Enola White to find out more about this weekend's Cabaret for a Cause. So, with no time to waste, let's head out. It has been a couple of months since I last caught up with Ragtag Cinema's co-executive director, Barbie Banks. So, with much afoot in the cinema world, the cusp of the Golden Globe Awards on February the 28th, the Academy Awards on April the 25th, plus the countdown to this year's outdoor true-false film fest already well underway, this seems like a good opportunity to once again peek behind the ragtag curtains. Good morning, Barbie. Good morning. How are you? I am well. I am curious at the moment whether you have any insights into if people are watching movies that either mirror our fears, kind of like picking a scab, you know, it doesn't help, but you feel compelled to feel the pain or whether people are seeking cinematic escapism, and also what your movie viewing habits have been the last couple of months. What's your sense? I think people are still looking for escapism. That's what we, you know, we opened the, reopened the cinema back in June with singing in the rain and things to make you not think about the pandemic. And that seems to be what people are most excited about. Our drive-ins have been really successful and they have nothing to do with what's going on currently. And so I think that's what, I think we're going to see people interested in films that mirror what we're going through in a year or two to reflect back on it. But right now we're still trying to get away from it all. What have you been doing? What have you been watching? I mean, I've been going to the cinema. It's, you know, we're open. We just don't have um, a lot of brand new films coming out. And I have watched now three times the movie Promising Young Woman. It is excellent. (laughs) The first time I saw it, I was by myself in the theater. And the second time, there was actually a few more people, which I think 
is the best way to view a movie is with a crowd. And so it's excellent. I think the other thing that we're seeing is films that would not have gotten a push from distributors because they were, um, I mean, I don't know why, because they were, there's other bigger films out are now getting pushes. So the one night in Miami, which just left the cinema MLK FBI is a film that I don't think we would have seen so much theatrical push behind if it hadn't been those big tentpole films held back because of the pandemic. Did you feel ready to take on different films after January the 20th? Did your stress levels subside enough that you could watch movies that you'd kind of had on hold for a while? Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I mean, that's what was so weird is I, I, I mean, I'm happy to say that I'm a huge Biden supporter and not a Trump supporter, but it just felt like viewing the world a little differently, you know, that it felt safer to watch a movie like MLK FBI and realize like, hopefully these are the things that are not going to be happening in our country anymore, trying to take down people who are making it better and protecting our democracy and equal rights for everybody. It felt safer to enjoy that. I definitely felt like I, my stress levels were too high to take on a movie that was going to add to them for the, for the longest time. And so I think it was after January the 20th that I finally watched The Social Dilemma. Yeah. And then Uncut Gems, we also saw, which is so stressful. <laughs> so stressful. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was a, such a polarizing film last year at the cinema. I mean, people would walk out going, I loved it. And other people would walk out in the middle of it. I hate this film. So <laughs> I totally understand that with that film. <laughs> so this year, the Academy Awards are pretty late compared to usual. Is that all to do with the event itself or movie eligibility? I think movie eligibility for sure. I mean, I'm sure they would love to have had a room full of people, but it really is about the lack of films that were available and eligible for an Academy Award. And so we have these weekly meetings with our lobbying group that works for movie theaters. And it's just every week there's more and more films being pushed. And so it's going to be an interesting awards year. I hope we see, I don't think the films that are going to be nominated are in any way less than or not worthy, but it's just going to be films that maybe wouldn't have got a fair shake in other years. I mean, another of the big changes to the 2021 Oscars, albeit theoretically temporary, allows streaming and video on demand movies that had planned theatrical releases, presumably to then be thwarted by COVID, to be eligible for the Academy Awards. And I'm guessing that was pretty controversial in the industry. Yes, we hated it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we already... Um, are up against a huge streaming platform, Netflix, they have purchased, this is before the pandemic, purchased a couple theaters so that they could release their films in just their own theaters to get eligibility for the Oscars. And that was a huge red flag about their sort of unwillingness to play nice with small theaters. And um, now this just gives them another leg up. I mean, they're, they make beautiful, great, media, but we would love for it to be in our cinema too, because that's how we think movies should be watched. Do you think it will be temporary, this allowing streaming and video on demand movies, which is what they say it is, it's just for this year. But do you think there'll be pressure from those big players to maybe make this a permanent change? 
I think we'll see it go away for another five years. And then eventually, I think we're going to have to allow that to be those be eligible because it's just the way that the industry is moving. But I think, I think they'll take it off for a while and give us a a fair shake to try to rebuild up our, our cinema. And I think that, I think we'll see streaming platforms if they do eventually change that rule that they will have a very short window of, you know, maybe even just a weekend where it goes out to theaters and then opens online and streaming. And so which is wonderful, but still, you know, like Little Women, it was months and months of people coming to the cinema to watch it. And we can't accommodate the same number of butts and seats as like Hollywood theaters can. And so it doesn't give us a fair shake as a small theater. And that's what they base it on. They base it on the amount of money and viewings that they can get through a particular cinema, right? Right. Correct. Yeah. So we have a good reputation and have because we're one of the only theaters open currently, it's been helping us build relationships with distributors and they're impressed that we can get 30 people in a theater right now. But that's going to change. And I think we're going to have to go back a little bit to our very independent roots, which isn't a bad thing. I think it's good to show films that you can't see anywhere else. Right, because even though Netflix is producing all of this new media that's big budget going into big movies, those independent movie producers still exist and they're also battling where the money is going and big organisations like Netflix. So they still will be relying on smaller venues, art house venues like a ragtag, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know we've seen a little bit of a shift, especially with women directors, but the independent films are where you see non-white male directors getting opportunities. And so we also think that's a really good thing. I always like looking through the list of documentary nominations so I can mentally think, seen it, seen it, right. seen it. Thanks, of course, to True False of the previous year. And I don't think nominations are out yet, but the predicted nominations are out. And there are several in the top 10 that were at True False last year, including the, the uh, I think the favorite is Dick Johnson is Dead. Yes. And the director, Kirsten Johnson, is just such a huge fan of ours and we're a fan of hers. So I really hope that I think it'll for sure be nominated, but I really hope that she takes the award this year. There are some other really huge docs in that list, some of which were at True False, Welcome to Chechnya, Boys State, Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution, Collective. And then you've got The uh, the Way I See It about the former chief official White House photographer, Pete Souza. Were there any surprises in that list? Any omissions, maybe? I was surprised to see the film Time getting, as by Garrett Bradley, getting so much, I don't know, people rallying behind it. It's a great film and it should be nominated, but just like the type of film it is doesn't always get a fair shake. And I just think it's phenomenal and I'm excited to be able to to see her like she came with a short to true false she was at citizen jane with a short and so it's pretty great to see garrett moving up and being you know at least on the short list to be nominated and so that's the one that i was surprised about but very excited about ones that were omitted man i don't know i i was just really moved by dick johnson is dead that i was not surprised at all that that was on there and boy state and stuff like that it's I mean, that's what's kind of phenomenal about the festival is that we get a chance to see all these films when other people 
haven't been able to see. I mean, Boy State is on Apple Plus, which is not a streaming service that is common household name just yet. And so we're lucky in Columbia that we got to witness it. It is always interesting what they choose and what the criteria are. So I would think that Welcome to Chechnya, which was obviously so difficult to film, everybody took so many risks and it was so beautifully presented and the story arc was so well laid out. Like for me, that was such a standout movie. And I, I love Dick Johnson is Dead. It was super cute. Was it as hard to film as Welcome to Chechnya? Probably not. Right. How do they, you know, what are the criteria they look at? You know, I think there's been a shift in what the what people look at that it, it used to really be about what is the topic that's being shown and how does it how is it impactful and there's been a little bit of shift to have you know topic agnostic films and really look at the filmmaking and i think the reason dick johnson is dead is loved by the academy specifically is that it walks this line of fiction and nonfiction that is ultimately the Oscars are about fiction filmmaking and the documentaries are kind of tacked on. And so I think that's what was exciting. And, and honestly, the Oscars are very political. And so if David France, I'm not saying he did, but if he ever pissed somebody off, all of a sudden he's not on the short list (laughs) for the Oscars, you know, it's like, it's not completely about the best filmmaking. It's about money behind it and ability to advertise to the voters in the Academy. And the leading contender for best movie overall is Nomadland, starring Frances McDormand and based on the book of the same name by Jessica Bruder, which was the city's one read book back in 2019. And Jessica came to Columbia and spoke and was also on Speaking of the Arts. So that's very exciting to see her film or the film based on her book be the leading uh, contender for the best movie. And it's one of those interesting hybrid of Fiction based on a non-fiction book. So again, like you're saying, it kind of walks that line. It has some of the real life people played by actors and other real people in the book, Swanky, Linda May and Bob Wells, appearing as themselves. I'm wondering if you know when it's coming to Ragtag. Oh my gosh, this film has been, it's like on our staff meeting agenda every week. (laughs) (laughs) We've been waiting to get it. It keeps getting pushed. We anticipate that it's going to come in April. And so we are just, we haven't got the red flag to announce it as a coming soon film because we haven't locked the date. But as much as you want it, we do too. And it's just been hanging in the balance for a long time. And so I hope that we get it. We, you know, the the director of it, Chloe, she came to True False with the film The Writer. So we we kind of put a nudge in with her too to be like, don't you want it to be seen in Columbia? <laughs> you had a good time here. And sort of when it when it goes to the distributor, the director doesn't have a lot of pull, but it's worth a try to try to be able to let people see it in our space. Well, it premiered last year in September at the Venice Film Festival and it won the top award at the festival, the Golden Lion Award. And then it also did really well at the Toronto International Film Festival. I think it's the first film ever to win the top prize at both Venice and Toronto. So, yeah, super excited to see that. I think that will come out on top this year. And I mean, there's a lot of great films, but it just, it has everything. And, And Chloe is a phenomenal director, so... I'm excited for her, for sure. Okay, so moving away from the Oscars into our local film scene, there are two events I want to ask you about, neither of which I know anything about. The Rites of Spring and True Love, which a bird has whispered to me, are things that um, we should be talking about. So take it away, Barbie. 
So Rites of Spring is a new event that we're doing, and it's going to be a little celebration downtown on the weekend that the fest would have happened. So March 6th, with the health department's approval, which we haven't got yet. So (laughs) take over downtown and have a celebration. There'll be buskers out. We're going to have cool art sculpture that involves a cathartic experience of getting rid of 2020 and moving into 2021. There'll be arts and crafts that you'll make that will then be a part of a larger art piece during the fest. And then um, included in that is our, this will be the third year of an event called True Love, which is uh, downtown businesses, a percentage of their sales come back to True False on that day. So Poppy's always participated, Blue Stem, just really every place downtown. And then the restaurants downtown will have our new True False wines that are premiering this year. So we had last year was the first year we did this with Les Bourgeois, but we'll have a new red and a new white for everybody to sample. A little different during COVID. You can't go in and sample everywhere, but there'll be bottles available to purchase and it's really good wine. I got to be in on the sampling of it. And and we had an artist that designed the labels. And so it's just going to be a, a day celebrating true false on what would have been the fest. Oh, and it, it'll end, that day will end with a drive-in of a retrospective film. We don't know which one yet, but it'll also kick off what we're calling Hindsight, which will be an online mini festival of old true false films for people to watch. And so from March when the festival would have been through when the festival is happening in May, there'll be true false films online that you can watch and interact with directors and things like that. Oh, I love that. I love that, you know, you always miss some films every year. And also there are films that you just really love that you haven't got around to seeing again. So the chance to revisit some of the favorites is fantastic. Yeah, and those things will, uh, the films that we've picked for those, I think we're almost done locking those, will be announced within the next week. And then people will be able to purchase passes for that and or just purchase one ticket if there's only one film that you're interested in rewatching or seeing for the first time. Okay. Are there any highlights of the February movie schedule you'd like to flag for us while you're here? Yeah, so uh, we're doing Moonstruck as a Valentine's Day drive-in. And so it's a, if you've never seen it, it's a great romantic comedy. Cher won an Academy Award for it. And it has Nick Cage in it, who is a ragtag favorite. And it'll be at the Remax building next to Bardal downtown. So a little bit closer to home for us. And it's going to be great. We also have another drive-in coming up in February for the film Minari. We haven't been able to announce that date yet. We're waiting on the distributor to give us the thumbs up. But that's a film that I think we'll see nominated for an Academy Award, either in Best Foreign Film or even maybe Best Feature Film. And it's uh, about a Korean family that moves to Arkansas and is chasing the American dream, if that still exists. And it's just heartwarming and beautifully shot. And if you liked Parasite last year, it's a very different film. But I think that was a good entry into foreign films don't have to be films that you avoid, that you can come and watch it and completely fall in love with. Yes. And that's definitely on the predicted nominations for best film and best actor and actress as well. That's that's up on the list for this year's Academy Awards. Okay, fantastic. Lots of great things coming up. And March the 6th, did you say, for the Lights of Spring and True Love? Yeah. And check our website for details on that coming out within the next few weeks. Perfect. Well, Barbie Banks, co-executive director of Regtech Film Society and the nearest I get to any inside Hollywood insights. (laughs) Thank you for catching us up.
Yes, thank you. 2021 is the 700th anniversary of the death of the man known in Italy as the supreme poet, Dante Alighieri, he of the eponymous Inferno fame. He died in 1321, just one year after completing his epic poem, The Divine Comedy, containing the aforementioned Inferno, and considered the greatest literary work in the Italian language. The Divine Comedy has been an inspiration for seven centuries of artists, writers, poets, musicians, sculptors, and and in more recent centuries, filmmakers. And it is also the inspiration for the latest art show in the Art and Betty Robbins Gallery at the Columbia Art League. The home from home for my next guest this morning, Executive Director Kelsey Hammond. Good morning, Kelsey. Good morning. Was it in recognition of this sept centenary that you decided on a divine comedy themed art show or just a happy coincidence? I would love to say that we had that much forethought and knowledge, but no, it was just a happy coincidence. Um, and I, I'm so glad that it happened at the same time because that is very cool. Karen actually was the Karen Stout, our education director, was the one who came up with the idea, and she just thought it would. There's a lot there to mine for artists that they could really go for it in a sense after this time of being sort of in isolation and all these things that they could really dig deep and come up with something cool. Well, I did a very small market test, sample size of one, my husband, Tom, to ask what he knew about Dante's Divine Comedy. And he said he knew nothing, but was it the same Dante who had an inferno? (laughs) So despite the poem's 14,233 lines of allegory, imagery, sin, love, hell, purgatory and paradise, my guess is that most people have only a crossword puzzle kind of acquaintance with the Divine Comedy. So would you like to hear my Divine Comedy in a nutshell? I would love it because it will also help educate me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we go. It's the Thursday before Easter and 35-year-old Dante finds himself in a dark wood being menaced by a leopard, a lion and a she-wolf, a.k.a. lust, pride and greed, who stop him climbing a mountain. The Roman poet Virgil appears as his guide and they head off to hell. Nine circles of hell later, they get to the centre of the earth, having seen a lot of sin, punishment and grisly stuff, from where they have to climb through the seven terraces of purgatory, encountering lots of the usual virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, hope, charity, faith, temperance, all the while being cleansed of their wounds and sins until back on the Earth's surface, a woman called Beatrice takes over from Virgil and they go through several heavens, plus the moon and the planets, and end up at the Empyrean, the heaven of divine peace. Salvation is attained, the end, with apologies to scholars of the work. Wow. Thank you. That is impressive. I'd like to say that I had read the 14,233 lines, but I just cobbled it together from, you know, bits I could find online. Right, exactly. No, I think that's that's actually when I, you know, so my husband is an English scholar and blah, 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 owns a bookstore. You know, he ordered extra copies of this. So I said, hey, Joe, I looked up uh, something about Dante online and I found a Lifetime movie that I should watch about about teens and things and pregnancy packs or something. And he goes... Let me tell you the basics. I went, okay, thanks. So you did a very, very good job, okay. I will say. <laughs> yes, because it is similar. He did use more words, so I appreciate your version, maybe. But. So, as you said, there's certainly no shortage of imagery for artists to work with. What kind of works did you think you'd receive? And how did reality square up with your imagined response? So I was a little bit nervous, like, okay, we're in winter, you know, like thinking, okay, I'd really love to have a happy show. We normally do the what we call, lovingly call the food show in January so that the gallery is filled with delicious things to look at, things you want to eat. You sort of salivate every time you walk through, that kind of thing, <laughs> which I was looking forward to, but no, no, no. 
no. And then I had this feeling, okay, it's going to be hellfire and brimstone. It's just going to be, everything's going to be red. You know, it's just going to look like the pit of despair in Mm -hmm. here. Nine circles of hell. Yes, exactly. And luckily it is not all that. (laughs) It actually, um, it goes through all of the stages of all of the journeys of all the things, many circles of lots of places. And it's very, it's incredibly varied, which is lovely to see. And, And it is actually very, um, like artists before who've created work based on Dante, based on this poem, like it is so different. It's so according to that artist and and who they are and what they make. So that's, that's pretty cool. Do you get the sense that when you announced the show, artists had to go off and you know do lots of research and reading and come up with their artwork or, or do you think there was already a general knowledge out there? I think, I think it's a mixed bag. I think some people were like, I had no idea. So I just kind of looked up a couple of things or they knew the the general idea like I did of like, right, heaven, purgatory, hell. And then what does purgatory mean exactly? And there's some extra mining to kind of do there. Or maybe people were familiar with the Gustave Doré images that were created that are sort of the most well-known, I would say, that you see printed in the book if, you've, if you're reading the book in school or not reading the book in school and just reading the cliff notes or whatever. So I think that there's there's sort of that, like you were saying, like this pop cultural knowledge piece based on stuff. So I think people did have to look up a little bit. I don't know how many people actually read the whole poem but um, <laughs> or even part of it. But, but there are more specific um, – one artist, Christina Nunez, has a really lovely – Uh, almost like a Venn diagram painting. It's called The Divine Comedy, The Annotated Notes. I think that's it. So it has sort of these overlaying color, like Venn diagram, like loops of color that cross over each other. And it feels celestial a little bit. It it's a uh, very modern looking and then it has her handwriting on the actual painting of where these things cross over, you know, when paradise is also purgatory and and where those things meet up, which is interesting. So, so yeah, so some people took a sort of intellectual approach and some people really just worked with their, the feeling of it, getting out of the headspace and going with the heart space. Did you have any works that came in? This always would happen to me. Did you have any works that came in and, and you'd be like, oh, um, that's interesting. How does this reflect the theme of the show? I mean, yeah, but I feel like I can always get there somehow. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, this ma- cuz if you think about this then this makes sense, you know. I think that I think yeah, there are a couple that I'm kind of like, yeah, that has a lot of red on it, so that definitely feels creepy and like it's, you know, hell. And I think that that's okay because again, poetry especially is so open to interpretation of what the poet's thinking and what the reader takes away from it and the imagery that you come up with in your own headspace. And so I think that that sort of loose interpretation that some artists have works. I don't know. Somehow it really works. I don't know if you've come in to see the show yourself yet, but there are a couple pieces where I'm like, okay, yeah, like there's one that's more contemporary by Phil Peters that's of, it's all blue and it's a, I think it's a woman, it's a human figure and it's all blue and it looks like someone's depressed or is feeling sort of isolated or lonely. And I think that to me, that's not like that doesn't look like Dante, you know, he's not climbing a hill or something and Virgil's nowhere to be found, but it does seem like a purgatory moment, you know, or maybe that is someone's hell that kind of um, having that connection or being in front of that, that painting, I feel a connection there somehow, you know? So I, I think that in that way, the modern take on all of these things is, 
we don't necessarily relate to this really old poem that has <laughs> taken this character on this epic journey, but I feel like we we do still feel like, um, you know, we're still dealing with, especially currently, we're dealing with still isolation feelings. And is that a hell or is that a purgatory? Or maybe it's a heaven for some people. Maybe it's a heaven for some people. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, it certainly does lend itself to a more abstract response because it is so, there's a lot of emotion and feeling involved with it that doesn't necessarily require you to produce a realistic painting. You can really go down that abstract route. Yeah. And I think, you know, some of the, the paintings in some way, I'm always like, okay, well, those will probably deal it on the head, you know, like cause they're, you can create it from paint and you can make it look however you want to. And it's the people who work in like wood and jewelry and metal that sometimes I'm like, wow. And you really get the feeling of the piece from that. We have really strong entries this time from, from our three-dimensional folks that are working in different materials and the jewelry, especially Lee Roberts, Teresa St. Vrain and Caitlin Smith all have pieces that they entered that are really cool. I mean, really, really neat. They're all necklaces and they're all worked in a way that really gives you that feeling of hellfire and being trapped and like all this stuff. It's like, do I want to wear that? Kind of I do, you know, like I kind of want to walk around and look like a total badass with this (laughs) person trapped inside something around my neck. That's cool. (laughs) Well, as we are on the radio and you also co-own a bookshop where describing words are the main currency, describe a few of the works for us that stand out for you. So a couple of the award winners, Jane Mudd got first place and she has a painting called Paradiso Afterlife Party, which is an oil painting that is like a revelatory dance party. And all of the shapes and the figures that are created through the paint are very organic. So it almost looks like the trees are starting to dance, which to me then brought me to almost like a Lord of the Rings headspace of like, you know, the Ents that come alive and or, or that are living and, and they go into battle, but they also probably have epic parties, even though they talk really slowly, whatever. But it's just neat to see how um, she's applied this paint to give all of this life happening from things that look natural. So the clouds above have faces in them that are emoting different feelings and all of these things and the water down below and then all of the greenery like at a certain point you're like is that a beer stein what's happening there's a lot of this anthropomorphic stuff happening um in essentially what is a, almost like a landscape painting so that's pretty incredible and then um joanne burnesh who is a columbia staple in terms of artistic prowess you know she's been involved with the art league forever her work, La Balazza Rivolata, is all about beauty and the stages of the beauty of youth and how how that transforms into decay as the body ages. And when Joe Staley, the juror, and I were talking, we had this really long, in-depth conversation about growing older and what that means as a woman. Mm. Your value is so associated with beauty and attractiveness and this commodity that that work really spoke to both of us who are in these different stages of life after the bloom of youth you know like <laughs> i'm in my 40s she's older i'm not exactly sure i wouldn't say anyway but there's like we both related to that painting being at different ages but how how we're seen by society so i think that brings that whole idea you know dante was obsessed with beatrice right that he that she was his muse throughout life and when Joe and I, Joe, my husband, Joe and I were talking about it, I was 
oh sure a man who's obsessed with someone who he didn't even really know he like met her briefly and then she married somebody else and and he's like right but it was that idea that she was his muse forever because she stayed the same that your muse um will never die right like they'll they'll always be in that same state so that was interesting to think about that too when looking at that piece so and that's a collage that's um put together from many different images and and things so that's pretty to me like a powerful representation of that idea that definitely goes through when you're thinking about the human form being tested and going through all these circles of hell and like, you know, <laughs> the journey that you take and stuff like that. And then the last one I kind of wanted to talk about is this really, I can't describe it as anything other than cute, which is not a word that people usually want to use when they're talking about art. Like cute is not the thing that it's kind of like saying, I like it. But Richard Hefner, who was a woodworker, he's made this it's called excess and it's a little pot, like a little bowl kind of thing with a lid, a little vessel. And it has legs on it, three little legs and some kind of weird tail thing. And I use legs and tail because it looks like a little wooden beastie. <laughs> like it's not necessarily meant to look like that, maybe. But when Joe Staley and I were looking at it, we both were like, well, aren't you just a little cute fellow? He looks like he's going to start singing something from the Beauty and the Beast. You know, it's like, <laughs> what is this character? And it's called excess because I think the idea is that it has all of these things that you don't necessarily need, like extra handles and extra things to pull the lid off of and whatever. But he just looks like he wants to come help you do something. He's trucking around in the gallery, picking things up and putting them inside his little vessel and I don't know. It's a very strange, <laughs> a strange, like anthropomorphized object. And I think that there's something about that, that I think when people think about art that has been made based off of Dante's poem, you think of Hieronymus Bosch and Dore and these people where Dore's work is very like, these are human figures toiling through devils and the epic, whatever. And then you look at Hieronymus Bosch and you're like, oh, do I want to look closer? I have to. Ugh, oh, what is that? Oh, my gourd. You know, just the weirdest things that you see. And I think that Richard's work is in a Hieronymus Bosch place, but is the cute version, the, the safer version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like you don't have to explain what it means to your kids, you know, it's like <laughs> that kind of thing. And those are all the top award winners. But those are the three that we had our longest conversations about because they really, you know, in talking about these different themes, they made us look longer. And th those that's when you know something is successful is when it's, there's a lot of conversation to mine as you're looking at the work. Well, the Divine Comedy is on display at the Columbia Art League in the Art and Betty Robbins Gallery through February the 26th. If you don't want to visit in person, you can scroll through the works in the show online at columbiaartleague.org. Kelsey Hammond, Executive Director and Q2 of the Columbia Art League. <laughs> Thanks for dropping by. Thank you so much, Diana. At one point in time, I decided I wanted to develop a soprano voice and I took singing lessons and even passed a couple of exams. But it was a very short-lived period of my life and any skills I learned and aspirations I might have had have long vanished. So the thought of standing and singing to a room full of people makes me shudder. But not so for the pals of my guests this morning, Audra Sergal, Rashara Knight and Enola White. They can not only summon a host of friends to sing to a room full of people, but they can also persuade over 40 of their friends to sing to the camera on the computer and then let Audra put it out for the whole world to see. Good morning, Audra, Rashara and Enola. 
Good morning. Good morning. So we are living through tough times, even if there is a sort of vague, blurry brightening at the end of this long, dark tunnel. Plus, of course, we're in the depths of winter and seasonal affected disorder is preying upon us voraciously. <laughs> so let me start by asking, how are you all doing, Audra? The song I'm going to be singing on the show, I hope it's finished by by tonight. And it is called The Grey Lady. And it's an opus to February. And it's all about my seasonal depression. So I am writing songs about how I feel right now. And that's how it's been going over here. (laughs) (laughs) You guys can all have a good glimpse into it. Rashara, how is your life? Are we telling the truth? Absolutely. There's only us listening. (laughs) Um, Things are well. Yeah, sure. Let's go with that. Things are well. We are over in my neck of the woods. We're finally starting to get back into the groove of trying to put productions together for Talking Horse. So that has been very nice. It's given me a little bit of normalcy that I haven't had over the past almost 12 months. So that's been good. And then also, I've been writing real sad songs about terrible things that have happened over the past <laughs> So, I mean, yeah, that, that's how things are going for me. Things are, things are, things are swell. <laughs> does it help, like, writing songs about sad times? Does it bring it back or does it let it out? I think it lets it out. What about you, Shara? It is cathartic. It really is. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily change the situation, but it does help. Since I'm not like a big crier, at least in front of people, I can weep into like my notebook or my iPad and that that definitely helps. Enola, what about you? Well, I haven't been writing songs, but I have been uh, arranging different quartets. In another life, I was arranging saxophone quartets for my personal quartet composed of myself, Ryan DeLeon, Kristen DeLeon, and Scott Pummel. And I found that I've had quite a bit of time on my hands. So I started to return to to doing that and just making some arrangements because I missed performing and missed making music with my friends. Um, so took the opportunity to to start making opportunities for us to someday get back to normalcy and one day perform together again. Do you find yourself drawn to playing sad songs or do you try and banish it by playing more upbeat tunes? It's whatever my mood is that day. So it can be anything um, from Happy by Pharrell Williams that I've decided to do, or it can be something a little bit more somber. Recently, I've taken a dive into looking at some classical violin quartet pieces and seeing how I can potentially arrange those into saxophone quartets because saxophones um, can make themselves sound like different instruments, including a string quartet. So I've just been kind of branching out doing a little bit of all of the above. I do envy you all your ability to create and write music or play music and find a catharsis that way. Well, I feel like the compositional part of it or Anola, your arrangements sound incredible. I'm so excited about hearing those when you put them out. But uh, just the idea of getting, uh, you know, on Facebook Live and reading my diary just doesn't seem like it's going to have the same effect. You know, I just something says that about that. (laughs) 
for me. <laughs> I know from talking to my theater friends and just putting the show together every week how desperate people are for some theatrical arts connections. But, you know, online stuff mm-hmm. isn't for everyone. So I'm curious, Audra, are people more eager to stand on a stage and sing in non-pandemic times? Or is the desperation of isolation and no stages so overwhelming that they are you're being stampeded by <laughs> singers and performers when you ask them to stand in front of their computer and sing to a small green light? You know, which in which reality do you get more more people? You know, that's a really great question. Anytime we've done a cabaret for a cause event, Roshar and I have had so many people want to sing. And I just think it's a wonderful testament to how many amazing singers we have in Colombia. This one, what's cool about what we're doing this weekend is that it's a little bit more accessible. So sometimes it's hard to be able to sign up for an entire night. It requires childcare. It requires transportation, all these things for different folks. And what's cool is that anyone can participate this time. You need to be able to make a video or be able to log on to StreamYard. And most folks, we have that technology with our smartphones. So I love the fact that this one's really accessible and that we have people, for example, our friend Julie McGinnity, who's now out east is, and she's going to law school, but she has a master's in vocal performance, is going to sing. And I haven't heard her sing in you know over a year since she moved. So It's so cool that she was in our very first Cabaret for a Cause and now she's back digitally. Like that's so I like the accessibility part of it for sure. Right. Enola, I have seen you in a number of streaming performances over the past year and you seem very comfortable with the medium and totally on top of the technology. How has this past year moved you forward as a performer or has it? I think it has. Well, I don't think I'm like an expert in anything. I think the saying is I I just stayed at a Holiday Inn last night. Um, And that's basically how I feel with with all of this is it's been it's kind of grown out of necessity. I had to move to quickly to Zoom for both work and um, to get CEC's trivia out and up and running. And a lot of the the skills that I've acquired over the last year have been born out of that. It's just it's required and someone's got to do it. And I like performing. Personally, if I don't have a saxophone in my hands, I would not want to be on stage all the time. Um, I'd much rather hide behind the the cool, curvy, shiny (laughs) instrument. Um, So having a platform, a virtual platform for me, like as a a singer has allowed me to to kind of come out of that shell just a little bit and, and showcase some of the other things that I'm good at doing. Is it a place you're comfortable, the online version of you as a performer? I have no choice. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and it's really, again, it's really just because of the situation that we're, we're in at present times. Um, I mean, my, my work, everything is virtual now. So I had to get comfortable really, really quickly with talking with people, and engaging with people through a camera. So that just translates to, to performing and having that kind of uh, theatrical experience in my back pocket. I've been able to pull that out and communicate and engage and be warm and fun and and free on camera on zoom and and still have that kind of same vibe as I would if I was in person. I wonder how we're all going to be when we go back to being live again. Rashara, how do you think you'll feel about going back to live after being used to zoom? Quite honestly, as a performer, I thrive off of the audience and having that audience interaction. So for me, 
I really look forward to it. I miss the audience. I miss the applause. I miss the laughter. I miss like seeing their faces when, you know, it may be a very poignant piece and being able to see how they've been touched. That's just not really a relationship or a reaction that you can get from looking into a camera. I mean, obviously it it works for the times that we are living in right now. And I am thankful to have some sort of outlet to perform, but I do really miss that piece, that connection that you can actually make with the audience that is watching your performance. You have such a powerful voice, Rashara. You could sing to the back row at Arrowhead Stadium without a microphone, it seems like. And rooms, you know, they ring, they resonate when you sing. But as I know from simply putting together a radio show, room resonance is not your friend when it comes to audio production. So how have you had to adjust your voice or your performance technique to the world of online performances? Oh, boy. (laughs) 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 The struggle is real, I've got to tell you. Even, Even with preparing for the cabaret this week, I went ahead and I invested in getting a nice Blue Yeti microphone so that I have better sound quality because I had been recording before just using my phone. And again, when you sing loud, sometimes that does not sound pretty and you get the distortion and you get all of that. So um, I'm like, I need to go ahead and make the investment in getting the right equipment and tools that I need in order to make sure that this is the best quality it can sound. And I can't tell you how many hours I spent just singing into this microphone and trying to like check levels and making sure like. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. (laughs) It has been a huge learning curve for me. But I mean, on the plus side of that is now moving forward to whatever performance is going to look like in the future. Those are things that I can use Um, if we end up doing some sort of shows in person plus also a virtual component like I already know have that knowledge now I I can that I can use for future performances and productions so that that part of it is nice so Cabaret for a Cause, Audra, tonight and tomorrow night, Cabaret for a Cause is back with over 40 of your performing pals. This show is called Lovers, Losers and Loners. How did you come up with the title, first of all, Audra? I'm a sucker for alliteration. <laughs> I love alliteration. And initially when Roshar and I were talking about the concept for the show, we were talking about like the anti-love show. And I've always wanted to do one of those where it's the bitter Betty side of Valentine's Day where, you know, where it can be a little bit more funny and comical. And then as we talked about it, we were both like, you know, this might not be the year for bitter. We've had some bitter, you know, we've been drinking that tea. So just putting in the losers and loners so that we would have kind of a more complex and and more integrated idea of what love really is, right? Because on a certain level, I think that a lot of these songs people will feel all three of those, even though it's typically a love song, you'll feel the loner and the loser vibe in there. And so it's, I'm hoping that it will just, you know, meld us together in a fuller concept of this day that we celebrate love. What is love? It's all the things. The lovers and the loners have had this sweetness to it, but you know, the losers, it just sounds a little harsh. (laughs) I, you know, and I actually, I texted Shara. I said, do you feel like people are going to be offended by losers? You know? But I think, gosh, I hope we start embracing losing in the sense that failure and losing are kind of the birthplace of our vulnerability and our 
our need to rise again and that fighter spirit. And so I'm hoping that we start to embrace the fact that we've all lost something, a lot of things in the past year. So I'm hoping that we'll see it maybe with a new light. Can I have an optimistic view of losing? (laughs) (laughs) Losing is a precursor to gaining. Yes, it is. And I guess I I need that right now. So maybe um, that was why I put the losers in there. And Shar was like, okay, girl, I see you. We can, let's do it. Well, Enola, you are singing and playing the music for You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, made famous, of course, by Aretha Franklin. But before we talk about it, let's play a clip of your performance for Cabaret for a Cause. the radio what people cannot see is the video production quality which you created for this song which of course they will see during the cabaret performance in tonight's show but there isn't just one of you on the screen there are six of you five playing (laughs) saxophone each in a different gorgeous black and silver dress and then one of you in a pink dress doing the singing part. Tell me what inspired this production and how on earth you put this all together so brilliantly. Well, as I said earlier, I was, I've been in an arranging kind of mindset of different saxophone quartets. And I was in a funk of trying to figure out what the next thing that I wanted to arrange was and scouring the internet. And then I saw this post for Cabaret for a Cause. And I thought, oh, maybe I can get the quartet to submit some videos and we can we can present a saxophone quartet for Cabaret for a Cause. And as I started scouring the internet to see what was out there, I stumbled across a fantastic arrangement of this song by an arranger by the name of Seb Skelly. And um, he's playing it as a brass quintet with his sister as the, the vocalist. And I thought, wait a second, <laughs> I can do that. I can do all those things. Um, and so I found an arrangement of it and it was really, really easy to transpose everything for saxophone because really all I had to do was do the two inner parts because two of them were trumpets, soprano sax is pitched in B flat. And so it wasn't, it wasn't terribly hard to pull out a quick arrangement of it. The hard part was figuring out how to accompany myself while playing. <laughs> um, and I had to sit down and record myself over and over and over again and pour that into, um, I was using Audacity and and just arrange it to check my levels and see what it was. Was I playing too loud here? And did I need to use different dynamics or a different technique or a different tone here? Because I was just in my closet 
playing a soprano sax or a Barry sax. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I couldn't, couldn't hear myself playing at the same time. I was also playing along to a, a metronome so I could keep myself on time because sometimes I was really feeling it. And when you feel it, the metronome no longer matters. <laughs> So it was interesting um, recording each part separately, but then when it came to to putting the audio and and the video um, together, that wasn't terribly difficult because again, those skills have been born out of necessity from this year. I've been doing a lot of video editing for my my big kid job and um, making sure that all of our videos are of decent quality. So I have that those skills there. And from my degree program at Mizzou, I learned a little bit about audio engineering. I am not an expert by any means, but I know enough to be dangerous. Um, so I can I can do a little bit of audio mixing. So it was just me sitting down at my computer and hoping and praying that it would save when I actually pressed um, the save button. Um, and then you you have the, the wonderful video that I hope you all enjoy this evening. What software did you use to pull the whole thing together? I used Premiere Pro, Adobe Premiere Pro. Huh. It's brilliant. Audra, one of the things that I am endlessly fascinated by is how all performers and theatre companies are working out how to work with this new technology, how to circumnavigate its limitations, how to get the best out of it, and sometimes, as Enola proved, how to make it deliver moments that would not be possible in real life. So as the curator for the two-night cabaret event, you aren't just dealing with one stage. You are dealing with 40 stages with 40 different sound qualities, 40 different backdrops, 40 different voices in 40 different settings. Can (laughs) you talk a little bit without crying about how you balance all of that? So I think that I can speak for both Roshara and I here, which I, I don't make a habit of doing, but I just, I think that we had a learning curve with this particular event because I had just assumed that people would go to their, you know, their device, they would shoot shoot their video probably with an accompaniment track and send it over. And what was really neat about this particular experience is that people like Enola went into a realm that I was not anticipating. And we came up with some really creative, really just vibrant videos that people are putting out. And so, I mean, Roshar and I had a list of things that we had asked everyone to to consider like tips for making your video, you know, create a stage and just encouraging folks to like, you're in your house, but you can set up a little corner and find it and make it like your little nook. And so, um, one of my students from Hannibal, her name is Katie Wood is performing an original piece called once in a dream. And she's right next to her grand piano. And she brought these red roses out and she's wearing a red dress with her beautiful rhinestones and, I felt the vibe in that room when she sent me her test video. And I just, I was so excited that that creativity was just, it seemed like it was sprung out of this, which was really cool. The audio quality is inevitably different though, because you've got all these different room resonances. Do you just think it is what it is? Or do you try and do some audio production with it? It is what it is. You know, I think if there's one thing I've learned, at least from watching a lot of things online and tuning into different people's performances, Like, boy, are we all just doing the best we can. And especially for an event like this, that we don't want there to be any overhead. We want everything to go to Talking Horse. It makes it a little bit more accessible for us to be able to have it just like it is what it is. You're coming to this event and I, we hope it all turns out. We will have a sound check for all of the live stream performances before we go on. And that always helps too. Are you live streaming or playing recorded videos? So 
about 50% are pre-made videos and about 50% are live streaming. So we're going to have all sorts of different folks. Uh, for example, Trent Rash and David Hall are singing live, as is Ms. Roshara Knight and myself, Robin Anderson, Christine Bay, David McSpadden, Meredith Shaw. They're all going to be singing live. Wow, way to make it more complicated. Good job, Audra. <laughs> <laughs> It's amazing that Roshari even picks up the phone when I call. <laughs> Audra, anything else you'd like to say about the show before we close? Just that, and I'll let Roshari maybe speak to this a little bit more in detail, but just how important Talking Horse is to our community. For all of us wanting desperately to be seeing live performances, we just have to ensure that we keep the places that we see those live performances open by supporting them, even though we can't be in that physical space right now. And so I'm sure, Sharp, you want to talk about that, but just how important that is to me. And I hope people tune in and they give because it is a free event, but we want you to donate to Talking Horse. That's what we're all hoping for. Rashara, anything to add? Just a small piggyback. Just thank you for saying how important Talking Horse is. I'm biased, (laughs) but if Talking Horse is important to you and dear to your heart, we would just really appreciate you, you know, sitting in and, and listening to the performances. Everybody misses live performance, I know. But for right now, this is what we have to do until we can safely start bringing people into our theater again. Um, and I'm just really thankful and appreciative that we've made it this far. You know, at the beginning of all of this, we didn't know if we would see 2021. So we're thankful that we have been able to keep our heads above water. And I know a lot of that has to do with our community. And so we are just so very thankful that you continue to support us. And, uh, you know, come see the show. Come, come watch us sing songs. It'll be a fun time. Lovers, Losers and Loners will be streamed on YouTube at 7.30pm tonight and tomorrow with each evening featuring a totally different lineup of performers. This is a free streaming event, but as Rashara said, it is also a fundraiser for Talking Horse Productions, so viewers are encouraged to make a donation at an amount that feels right to them at TalkingHorseProductions.org, which is also where you can find the links to each evening's streaming performance. Ladies, thank you as always for taking time to chat. Singer, songwriter and curator of this weekend's Cabaret for a Cause, Audra Sergal, performer and Talking Horse Productions Executive Director, Rashara Knight, and musician, singer and interim Executive Director of Columbia Entertainment Company, Enola White. Thank you. Thank you. You're a gem. That is it for another week. As Rishara said, there are so many arts organizations that have spent the past year not knowing whether they would survive. And now it's up to all of us to help keep the footlights and the spotlights bright. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm as well as on Spotify. Or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thanks again to my guests today, Barbie Banks, Kelsey Hammond, Audra Sergal, Rashara Knight and Enola White. 
Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song, Restless Heart, opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music and her brand new album on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia! Columbia!